0: So you open up a bottle of a prescription drug that your doctor told you you need to take to get better, that little brown bottle. You've got the pill in your hand, and you're about to swallow it when you hear a disturbingly familiar voice in your head, and that voice says this. You should not take this drug if you're not able to stand up or sit upright for 30 minutes, have severe kidney disease, low blood calcium, or are allergic. Call your doctor right away if you develop new or worsening heartburn, difficulty pain for swallowing, or chest pain. If you develop severe bone, joint, and or muscle side effects, and studies were generally mild and include stomach pain, indigestion, heartburn, or nausea. And what is that? That is FDA speak. That is the voice of Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam actually in the form of the Food and Drug Administration telling you to be careful, to... Exercise caution, because that is the mission of the Food and Drug Administration. But what if, as some say, the FDA is actually going too far, is overdoing it, is actually causing harm? Well, that sounds like a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will be arguing for and against the motion. The FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Our debate, as always, goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, let's welcome Scott Gottlieb. And Scott, uh, you are a physician, you are a former FDA deputy commissioner, Uh, you've worn a lot of hats in your career, the jobs at the FDA, Uh, you're a doctor, you've also been an analyst on Wall Street at one point. Uh, I'm curious, what what about medical school prepared you for Wall Street? Anatomy class? How to
1: make important decisions based on imperfect information.
0: Ah, that is a very, very clever answer. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Gottlieb. And uh, Scott, your partner is? The always provocative Peter Huber. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Huber. (laughs) Peter, you are also arguing for the motion. The FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Speaking of people doing a lot of different things, you have a doctorate in mechanical engineering from MIT. You have clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor. You write about energy and technology. Your forthcoming book, The Cure and Code, uh, is about drug policy. What have you not covered that you still need to get to in life? (laughs)
2: Well, mostly I'm just hoping to overcome my uh, intellectual attention deficit disorder.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Huber. Who claims to have attention deficit disorder? I think not. Our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health, and here to argue against the motion. First, let's welcome Jerry Avorn. Um, Jerry, you hold a position at the Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital as chief of the division of pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics. Would it take you an hour to explain to us what those things mean?
3: No. It is the study of uh, balancing the risks and benefits and cost of medications as they're used in routine care of patients. Nine seconds. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: Jerry Avorn. And Jerry, your partner is?
3: Oh, David Chaloner.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, David Chaloner. David Chaloner is Vice President Emeritus for Health Affairs at the University of Florida. Uh, David, you did medical school, you got your M.D., but then you decided uh, to spend your career not seeing patients day in and day out, but to go into the research side. Why, why did research pull you?
4: I went to Harvard, and my faculty told me I had to.
0: <laughs> and in those days, you did what the faculty That's told right. you to do. Ladies and gentlemen, David Chaloner. Our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. On to round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. And here, speaking first for this motion, Scott Gottlieb. He is a practicing physician, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and former FDA deputy commissioner. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Gottlieb. Thank you. To
1: understand why FDA's caution is hazardous to our health you have to appreciate FDA's growing focus on statistical outcomes over results for patients. Fading at FDA is a mindset of clinical medicine and patient care and its place is a growing fixation on the statistical results of clinical trials and a growing rule by math over medicine. This mindset can be seen in the trade-offs that now hamper clinical trials and drug development. FDA imposes increasingly onerous experiments to try to ferret out benefits from new drugs, and FDA reviewers want the results of clinical trials to insulate them from critics, critics who say they're not doing enough about drug safety. But the laborious trials that result come at a very big human cost, especially when it comes to drugs targeted to unmet medical needs. Some promising therapies simply aren't being developed. Let me tell you one story of how this mindset impacts patients. Hunter syndrome, is part of a family of related and extremely rare disorders. All are inherited. Each robs children of the ability to produce a crucial enzyme that's used by the body to break down certain sugar molecules found in the blood. These molecules end up accumulating in places like the liver and the spleen and the joints, with often painful and debilitating consequences. Before treatment came along, parents had to literally sit idly by and watch as these diseases destroyed their children. But by the 1990s, drugs would develop that could function as replacements for the enzymes that were missing in these related disorders. By 2004, FDA had approved enzyme replacements for four other conditions that were each very similar to Hunter syndrome. But when an experimental enzyme for Hunter syndrome finally came along, FDA's regulatory norms and FDA's regulatory culture had changed dramatically. In order to approve the Hunter's drug, called Elaprase. FDA required that the trial enroll 96 patients. This was fully 20% of all the Americans afflicted with the disorder. And instead of testing the drug for six months, as had been done for every other drug, FDA wanted a full year of clinical data, 52 weekly infusions in these kids. Finally, in past trials with all of these lysosomal disorder drugs, these enzyme replacements, FDA asked companies to measure surrogate markers like the ability to shrink organs like the liver and the spleen. That was interpreted as proof that the drug was breaking down these sugar molecules and they weren't becoming deposited there, and this would mean that the enzyme replacement was working. But in the case of the Hunter's drug, Eliprase, FDA decided to test the ability of the children to walk and to breathe as the clinical outcome it wanted. FDA saw this as a more rigorous way to see if the drug was working, but it came with hard trade-offs. It made the trial much longer than it needed to be. You had to wait years for the kids to become disabled to see if the drug was having its impact and to measure the result, and it tested the boundaries of what was ethical. Yet this story is increasingly the norm when it comes to FDA review culture and has played out multiple times in recent years, so much so that observers who who follow the FDA now believe that the Europeans have become more flexible when it comes to drugs targeted to unmet medical needs than the Americans'. Yet surveys of people with life-threatening disorders continue to show that patients want access to promising drugs sooner. They're willing to tolerate some risk. They're willing to tolerate the uncertainty. For patients with unmet medical needs, what kind of FDA do we want? We can't have an FDA that focuses on its present process rather than advancing patient care. Americans deserve a less cautious FDA and an FDA that actively embraces advances in science. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Scott Gottlieb. Our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Our next debater is going to speak against this motion. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Avorn is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and chief of the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Avorn.
3: Thank you very much. Now... There are a number of myths that underlie the proposition that I think it's important to just uh, dismiss early on. One is that somehow FDA is the reason that we don't have more new drugs and that FDA is slower than other regulatory agencies. And in fact, these are questions that one can look at with real data, and the real data do not bear out the uh, assertion that Dr. Gottlieb is defending. There is a very high acceptance rate by FDA of new drugs. In an article in Forbes from last December, uh, it documented that 77% of drugs are approved the first time around, and a very high proportion of the ones where FDA says, please go back and find some more information out for us are then approved the second time around. So FDA is indeed saying yes to drugs, and it is doing so at a rapid clip. That's the other myth that we need to um, disabuse ourselves of. Uh, In fact, the salaries of the FDA staff that review drugs are, for better or worse, half paid by the drug industry, which creates with it some deadlines that, as a result of the so-called user fees, the FDA must have its deadlines met. And for a priority drug, which is an important new drug that brings something to the table that we don't already have, that deadline is six months. And in a paper last year in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Ross and colleagues from Yale – reasonable university, reasonable journal, they, they looked at whether or not the FDA was, in fact, slower than other regulatory agencies. And so they looked at the European Medicines Agency, which is the pan-European FDA equivalent, and Health Canada, which is the Canadian version of FDA. And it found that, in fact, review times in the US were shorter for FDA than they were for the Europeans and for the Canadians. And, in fact, for drugs that were approved in both places... of the time, they were approved first in the U.S. before in Europe, and 86% of the time, they were approved in the U.S. before Canada. So the myth that somehow FDA is slowing things down is not borne out by the facts. So there needs to be an agency that represents the best interests of the American public and can say to the manufacturer, that does sound promising, but there are some things that you really need to look at, and if it's an important new drug, we'll get you an answer in six months. I don't think that's too much to expect, Uh, of a company to do, especially since we know that any drug that is powerful enough to make a difference in patients' lives is also powerful enough to do something that we don't want it to do and didn't expect it to do. There does need to be a cautious agency out there looking at drugs, um, and we, we need to have something interposed between an enthusiastic company which has billions of dollars riding on, it, on the success of its product and the public health of the American people. And there needs to be a rigorous review. That rigorous review can be done quickly, it can, and it is being done quickly. It is generally favorable, and just because we can make it better by informing it with genetic and other kinds of biological discoveries doesn't mean that we don't still need to have a traffic cop, kind of like an air traffic controller. We all saw a couple of weeks ago what happens when we have big government back away from having enough air traffic controllers. The FDA is the air traffic controller for our drugs, and that is why we need their caution. It is not the case that it's causing public health problems. In fact, they have gotten faster and faster over the past decade, and as a result, they are proving that they can help the American people be protected from drugs that have bad effects. And that's exactly what we need them to do, and that's why I think that it is important to vote against the proposition that FDA's caution is is hazardous to our health. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jerry Avorn. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Debating for this motion that the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Peter Huber, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of the forthcoming book, The Cure in Code, How 20th Century Law is Undermining 20th Century Medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Huber.
2: Well, in case you didn't know, uh, our side actually won the first round of this debate in in 1992 uh, when we persuaded the FDA to adopt uh, what is called the accelerated approval rule. Uh, Let me begin by giving you some brief context uh, and a description of where this rule has been applied. Um, go back to 1988, a couple of biochemists from the United States and one British uh, win a Nobel Prize for their um, uh, mastery of what is called uh, structure-based design, and this is the, the one, of, one of the two processes that they've been using ever since to design precisely targeted drugs that can hone in on a molecule that is associated with some uh, disease. Um, this is some years after HIV arrived in town, and they quickly develop uh, several drugs that can... Uh, Uh, target different parts of HIV's uh, chemistry. Um, The FDA licenses these drugs at absolutely record speed, applying its uh, accelerated approval rule, and it soon becomes apparent that not one of them is going to be any good, not for long, not on its own, because the virus mutates so fast that you throw any single drug at it, and it very quickly uh, develops a resistance to it. You just can't beat it with one drug. But doctors at this point, because the drug's been licensed, uh, are now free to work things out on their own, and they very quickly begin assembling these drugs in cocktails, and that does the trick. Um, We're finding similar levels of complexity and diversity in almost all of the major intractable diseases we're facing now, the neurological, the autoimmune diseases, and indeed, in many very common diseases like diabetes, they just aren't going to be beaten with one-size-fits-all drugs. The underlying chemistry isn't going to allow it, which is bad news for the FDA, uh, because the FDA's standard protocols are actually pretty good at uh, licensing one-size-fits-all drug, but they are worse than useless, it turns out, when they encounter complexity. Using accelerated approval, the FDA can, in fact, handle complexity uh, reasonably well. In your book, Dr. Avorn, I surmise you do not like this rule at all. You attribute its origins to AIDS activists who terrified the agency with a massive sit-in. Here's another view. The rule has allowed for the development of pioneering and life-saving HIV and cancer drugs over the past two decades. That quote from President Obama's Council of Scientific Advisors in a report issued last September. And the report recommends that the FDA use accelerated approval much more systematically and broadly for all drugs that are address an unmet need in treating a serious illness. Um, but for the rule, we probably wouldn't have many of those drugs at all, which means that the benefits of that rule have absolutely dwarfed anything that our opponents here can possibly tell you about the rare side effects that might have been missed when that rule was applied. Uh, We owe 40 cancer drugs and 50 new treatments uh, to accelerated approval. They have given years of additional life to uh, many patients. There is no story about safety and side effects that can possibly approach those numbers. Um, So this magic rule doesn't just get us the drugs we need licensed faster, it gets them licensed when the the FDA's other rules, the slow rules, just won't license them at all. How? In brief, it, what it does is it loosens the FDA's grip just enough to let doctors get involved and work out the really good drug science uh, using the very best to, uh, to, tools available. Uh, the, White, the White House report would systematize it. You know, you would gather torrents of information during the trials, use those to work out how the patients are doing and why some are, are faring well on the drug and, and others aren't. That kind of screening of patients and active uh, rearranging uh, the trial as it progresses is anathema under the standard FDA protocols you're not allowed to do it it is hazardous to your health because it can't use the science thank you
0: thank you peter huber you know i i i think you could actually do one of those fda commercial things where you read the where you read the, the the side effects really fast that was really well that was pretty quick pace well done Our final debater against this motion, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health, is David Chaloner. He is vice president emeritus for health affairs at the University of Florida. He chaired the Institute of Medicine's committee on the public health effectiveness of the FDA 510K clearance process. Ladies and gentlemen, David Chaloner.
4: I will be speaking, as was said, against the motion that the FDA's caution is hazardous to your health, in particular as it relates to the device side of the equation. If anything, the anecdotes of the last decade would indicate that we need more caution in our systems. The evidence, the Shiley heart valve implanted in patients, begins after several years shattering and embolizing to your brain and to your peripheral body and killing some patients before they could be replaced. The Dalcon Shield IUD, put in women, causing perforation of the uterus, pelvic infections, some deaths, much trauma. Chemotherapy infusion pumps, poorly calibrated so that the operators could make mistakes and would infuse drugs at ten times the rate That they should have because the wrong button was pushed, killing patients. Metal on metal artificial hips, removed poorly, uh, giving medical uh, metal embolism into patients, causing uh, resurgeries and removals. Biliary stents that were approved for use in a very low pressure environment began to be used by industry for use. In veins and arteries elsewhere in the body in which they collapsed or did not work. So I'd say, with this kind of evidence, that the case is almost closed and we could vote now. But I think the audience needs to understand uh, exactly how we got to the point we're in. Well, the vast majority of medical devices used in healthcare in the United States are reviewed by the FDA before entering the marketplace and are cleared. That's a very important word. They are not approved for human use in a process called pre-market notification, or the 510 clearance process, which is named after the section of the authorizing legislation in 1976. And the FDA has to comply with this because it's legislated that they do so. And this was done 35 years ago in the face of rapidly evolving technologies. Then stimulated by reports of problems, the public, legislators, the DHHS inspector general, and the courts, including the Supreme Court of the United States, have all questioned the value and logic of this clearance process, which is being used by a federal agency charged with protecting and promoting the public's health. The 510-K process was put in place by Congress and is not intended to evaluate the safety and effectiveness of devices. It cannot be transformed into a pre-market evaluation of safety and effectiveness as long as the standard for clearance is substantial equivalence to a previously cleared device perhaps as early as 1976 or prior. So, these are called predicates, and there's no assurance that a predicate is safe and effective.
0: Thank you, David challoner And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from myself and from you in the audience. Again, stating the motion, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health, and as we begin round two, we have heard from Scott Gottlieb and Peter Huber arguing for this motion. They're arguing basically, as Scott Gottlieb said, uh, put it, that statistics are taking precedence over medicine at the FDA, that they're falling into the trap of statistical certainty to the point where it's slowing down process, discouraging innovation, and therefore denying uh, access to devices and products that could actually save lives. And they say that the fact that some drugs actually get a special fast track suggests that there's something wrong with the slow track. The side arguing against the motion, David Chaloner and uh, Jerry Avorn, they point out the case of Vioxx and other uh, instances of pharmaceuticals that made it to the market and killed hundreds of people. They've talked about devices that have poisoned and lacerated the insides of women. They also deny the argument that the FDA is slow to approve, and if anything, they say, what's needed in the FDA is not less caution but more of it. The question I want to put to this side, um, they're saying the fact that a fast track had to be developed, uh, and I think this does date to the, to the midst of the AIDS crisis, and it was accepted and it worked and drugs got out there and they saved lives, establishes that that regime, that one two, three trial thing since 1962, is a problem. It's slow. It's not saving lives. I want to take that point that the existence of a fast track actually wins the debate for them. Uh, Jerry Avalon.
3: In my book, I indicated that, yes, the fast track did come from AIDS activists scaring the hell out of the FDA because they were so horribly slow, and that was a good thing. And that happened in the late 80s and early 90s, and FDA got better because of that excellent pressure from the AIDS community. And in the presidential panel's report that you mentioned that advocates that FDA needs to figure out more creative ways to move forward in that direction – that's also something I approve of because I was on the panel that helped write that report. So, indeed, this is something good, and we've got to not fight the last war and say it was terrible in 1989, and now we have a fast-track and keep complaining about how things were in 1989. The fact that there's a fast-track makes sense because some drugs really are breakthroughs, and you want to use the limited resources FDA has to move things forward. Would
0: fast-tracking the entire array of drugs make, be an no, it would be, un- incautious thing to do?
3: It would be a, an unwise use of limited resources is because we don't need to fast-track the next statin of which we already have
2: course, plenty. I mean, I mean, forgive me, uh, but this, th- this just isn't an accurate description. And f- look, this is absolutely unequivocal. Under the accelerated approval rule, you cut off a big chunk of what the FDA's normal uh, rules do. You are actually not doing what is normally required. And you're th- saying and, and that's and, a and, good And wait thing. just a second. And who does it then? Because you still have to finish. And the answer is you do it, uh, by and large, you do it in phase four, and a lot of doctors out there are now also using the drug and they are working completely independently and they are the ones who are using the modern tools to work out how to fit these rather simple drugs to our extremely complex bodies. They're finding the biomarkers on efficacy and safety. These are all emerging later and nowhere else in the FDA protocols do you get that. It never emerges during the standardized conventional protocols. You are blinded all the way through. There is no Bayesian adaption during the trials. There's you what? Just,
0: Wait, I don't know. You understand- just I would- don't get
2: the information. Okay. No,
0: no, I, I'm not saying it to mock you at all. I'm saying it because I don't understand. You're using terms of art, which if you took a minute to explain, actually would help I, us I would all. Just... I,
2: I put in one word, Bayesian. That means it that you It threw you're actually,
0: me. F- right. you're, 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 I was it, lost.
2: It, it means you're It means you're actually looking at the data as you go and learning from it as you go and adapting to it. And the FDA okay. is so concerned about something called selection bias, they don't allow it at all. You okay, know? I would so just trials.
1: add to that, that the FDA FDA has actually been backing away from the accelerated approval rule in recent years so much so that Congress had to recodify it in recent legislation and say we really meant it. We want you to use this
0: to try okay, to accelerate. Just for, drugs. Me, for me to understand, because I'm getting the gist of it, you think that's a good thing? This is a good development. It is
2: development. the only place we are actually developing modern drug okay. science down right. at the molecular what about level.
0: The, nowhere else Alan, are we doing it. What about their at the the argument FDA? for accelerated approval? Well, I have trouble with
4: that unless it's linked uh, on the other end with post-market surveillance. If you're going to short-circuit the safety of the public on the front end of these approval processes, then you've got to make sure that you have a credible early warning system to feed back to get that drug or get that device off the market. Why do you call it
0: short-circuit the safety of the American public? It's very pejorative. I think their term would be make it more efficient, um, save time, save lives. You say short-circuit safety. Why, say why you think it's, you're saying it's dangerous. Why?
4: I think it's dangerous because unless you can have early detection
2: of problems on the, on the post-market side, you are endangering the public. Look, and and I couldn't agree more, but let me tell you something. The the, the whole notion that you convene a group of patients of a certain size and you test them for a certain time and then you make a declaration of a drug is a pure artifice of the kinds of statistics that the FDA uses in its conventional protocols. It's the frequentist trial. Forgive the jargon, but the alternative I've been discussing is typically called Bayesian trials, and those are completely open-ended. No serious Bayesian says we will stop after a certain time and a certain number of patients. You keep feeding the data into the system forever, and you keep refining forever, and, and that's the process. And you,
0: well, let me let me go to Jerry Avorn. Jerry Avorn, are yeah, you a Bayesian or an anti-Bayesian?
3: Um, actually, I, I think there's a lot to be said for Bayesian analyses, and I know that FDA is interested in learning more about it, but that's a little arcane. Yeah,
0: let's not uh,
3: Maybe to, to give a concrete example of how, I mean, who could be against rapid assessment of drugs? And I can give you an example of why we can sometimes think that that's not a great idea. Uh, there was a drug approved at the very, in the last couple of days of 2012 uh, for tuberculosis. The FDA approved it based on a, an accelerated review in which it looked at what we call a surrogate marker, that is, not did it make your tuberculosis better, but did it change some lab test. In this case, it was about how much TB bug was growing in your sputum. The problem is that the FDA sped through that, approved the drug because it made the sputum get more sterile of TB drugs a couple of weeks sooner than placebo did. The only problem was that there was a five times greater death rate in the people given this new drug than the people given placebo, and most of those deaths were from tuberculosis. What about the follow-up study that the law requires FDA to do? They told the company, we want you to come back with a real clinical trial about this drug, and we want it on our desk by 2022.
0: Can you respond
1: to There's it? no question that FDA should have authority after these drugs are approved through trials to try to accelerate their development, to continue to study them and collect information. But when we're dealing with unmet medical needs, life-threatening disorders, patients want access to these drugs sooner. And you talk just about review times, but the real issue here is development times, and they've been going up. And they've been going up because the trials that FDA is mandating on drug developers are more and more rigorous. They're larger and larger trials. You're talking about trials that used to be two or 3,000 patients. Now are ten or 20,000 patients. Why is that? Patients. Because they were willing to embrace more uncertainty years ago when it came to these drugs. It was a different culture. There was was a sense that there weren't a lot of drugs for a lot of these diseases, and now they have this sense that there is sort of an abundance of riches, which there really isn't when it comes to unmet medical needs. The problem is that the mindset... That guides the development of new drug for hypertension, which we might all agree should be fairly rigorous, because we have good drugs for those diseases. Infects every other corner of the FDA. They don't make distinctions between drugs for very rare, very difficult disorders. Not enough. They do it in the oncology division too. Is, to is this
0: a cover your backside thing? It's absolutely. All right. I have trouble with that. Um,
4: the FDA is a public health agency. The public health is a broadly considered status of the general health of the public. And I think that the FDA uh, is required uh, to look to the public health broadly in all of its decision-making. But...
1: We, we should I mean we should talk a little bit about medical devices as well here. Mm. Right, a, lot of the, a lot of the problems that you talk yeah. about with medical Scott devices are engineering problems, but your solution is more clinical data. The solution that you're proposing, the solution you proposed with the IOM panel was more clinical data for those devices. And I'm saying you're not going to ferret out those kinds of challenges. I mean some of the challenges you talked about maybe you would, but many of them you wouldn't. I'll give you another anecdote, the minimally invasive aortic valve. Right now, before a year ago, to have your aortic valve repaired when when it became brittle, you had to have open-heart surgery. If you went to Europe, you could get a catheter to insert a new valve uh, through a minimally invasive procedure, much like a cardiac catheterization. 30,000 Europeans had that valve implanted in them before it was approved here in the United States. It took us four years since it was approved in Europe to finally approve it here, and FDA was requiring companies to put it in pigs and sheep, when there were thousands of Europeans walking around with it in their chest. Now, you explain to me why we couldn't learn more from those Europeans and the clinical data that was generated there than we're going to learn from pigs and sheep. And another anecdote... Wait, wait,
0: it's a great question. It's a great question. <laughs> Jerry
3: Avon Sometimes... The Europeans get it right, and we get it wrong sometimes we get it right, and the Europeans get it wrong. There are examples in both directions. It is not the case as the other side would have you believe that the Europeans or the Canadians or the Japanese are always getting access to these wonderful new drugs years before Americans. We also have drugs that are approved here before they are approved in Europe and, and devices. healthier pigs. devices they are I mean the yeah.
1: devices is different they are getting access to devices before the United States, and medical device companies in the u s are moving to Europe right now because they can get approved. There much faster than they can here.
0: Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. I want to remind you we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. I want to move in two different directions. I'll tell you what they are now, and we'll we'll work through them. First, to the side that's arguing against the motion that the FDA is overly cautious, um, your opponents have talked about the fact that people will die waiting for drugs because of this process. There's a logic to it, and I'd like to hear
3: your response to it. If To speak about this new TB drug, if I were a patient with tuberculosis... I don't think I would wanna have accelerated access to a drug that quintuples my risk of death, doesn't treat tuberculosis, and then have to wait ten years to find out if it really works. So a drug that is not if you're what if you're in a
0: truly acute situation? You're gonna die and you're willing to try anything.
3: That's a really interesting ethical issue that brings up the issue of LAIA trial, which many people will have remembered. That was an extract of apricot pits, and a lot of patients wanted to get it because they had cancer, and back in, what, the 1960s or 70s, people thought that cured cancer. I don't think we should give access to treatments that haven't been shown to work to people however much they want it. Now, that may make me a paternalistic person. But if we go back to an era where anyone who uh, wants access to a drug that has not been shown to work can get it, uh, then we're back into the phalidomide But I don't era. think they're well,
0: arguing a drug. Peter Huber, I want to bring you because I'm not sure that you're arguing that you want people to have access to a drug that has been shown not to work.
2: No, oh, I, I want people to have an access to a drug where we've developed the science so well that we know it will work in that patient, not in the uh, not, you know the crowd that exists somewhere in, in the FDA's computers, and that requires the use of the very best tools of modern molecular medicine under the FDA standard protocols. We are not developing that science. We should be
4: with some of these new, highly focused uh, therapies designed specifically, molecularly designed for a very small group of identifiable patients because of something we know about their genes, those can be given on a humanitarian exemption, and the patients who are idiosyncratic and small in number can be dealt with by exceptions from the uh, large population processes that we've been talking about. So it's not as if the FDA is standing in the way of the progress of America, modern American medical science. Yeah, Scott look.
1: Yeah, I, I think we need to think about... You're, you're talking about the drugs that, you know, you don't see a whole plethora of drugs that just aren't available after they've been developed. I think we need to also think about the drugs that never get developed. I'll give you an example. Polycystic kidney disease. Basically, it's an inherited disorder where you build up cysts in your kidneys and eventually you go on to have total renal failure. You're very familiar with it. FDA... Says that in order to demonstrate efficacy for a drug for polycystic kidney disease, you have to see how many patients go on to have renal failure versus, let's say, a placebo. But the problem is, it takes 30 years to develop renal failure as a result of polycystic kidney disease. If you could use a reduction in cyst formation as the end point in the trial and show that a new drug reduces the formation of cysts, it seems intuitive you're not going to progress as quickly to renal failure. And guess what? Companies have walked away from developing drugs for polycystic kidney disease. So those drugs just simply aren't being developed, and that's what I worry most about. It's not the drugs that are getting licensed in Europe and not here. it's the ones that simply aren't being developed. All
0: right, I want to go to audience questions now, and the way that this will work is if you raise your hand. Thank you. Hi, my name is Andrew, and I have a question for Mr. Huber. Uh, You mentioned that drugs should be approved without demonstrating clinical outcomes, but it seems that there's a risk that if you don't have enough data, you'll end up uh, with drugs that harm more than they help. Dr. Avor mentioned the thalidomide case. I was wondering what you would say to the people and the families who would be harmed by a drug that is rushed to market before it's ready.
2: Peter Hubert. Well, for the... Uh, the first thing I I would say to them is my my heart goes out to you thalidomide was a terrible tragedy and it involved kids and any parent and I am one uh, it just breaks your heart to read this okay Uh, the the question is when you don't understand a thing about what drugs are doing you make horrendous mistakes and we've made many in the past and many of the examples certainly in Dr. Avorn's book are about misuse of estrogen which dates way back decades and and, uh, diet drugs which have been used for all sorts of non-medical purposes and so on you know Nobody wants tragedies, but let's fix problems, not just lament them. Let's go to another question. Thanks.
1: Hi. Hi. Um, I'm Sarah, and I'm actually a practicing physician. And I want to know, in this age of evidence-based medicine, if every drug were fast-tracked or allowed to be sorted out, how could a Physician present a medication to a patient as being something that will help them and not harm them. Um,
2: do you, I, Scott or Peter, I, 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 um, I, I would. Peter I, Huber. I, I'll, I'll tell you what the very best systems are out there today, to my knowledge. Okay, um, and they are the ones that have, unfortunately, not mainly during the FDA trials, but post-market. Okay, accumulated huge databases of massive amounts of molecular data and clinical data. IBM is pioneering some of this work they are doing massive searches through very large amounts of molecular data and and they give you precision custom tailored the, the best possible prescriptions you can get you get those prescriptions only when you've accumulated a lot of patient-specific data and a lot of clinical data We should start doing that during the, the, the FDA clinical trials we don't Scott I, look, I, I think leave the, come in
1: the question presupposes that we actually know a lot about the drugs that go through the full-blown uh, clinical trials versus the ones that go through the, the Accelerated approval, And I would say that we don't. We don't know about the latent cardiovascular risk with most drugs on the market because we haven't looked for it, and we never will because it's impractical and impossible to do that study. So the advice I give patients and take for myself is if I'm taking a drug, I make sure I really need it.
0: Jerry Averworth.
3: Um, there, there's a tendency to believe that we can do anything with big data and that if we just let anyone use any chemicals they want and have a big enough database and a powerful enough computer, it'll all kind of come out in the wash. Um, And I I know a little bit about that because that's the kind of research we do in my division, and it doesn't work like that. Um, The reason that we've had clinical trials of the randomized kind for the last many decades is that that's a very powerful tool for learning what works and what doesn't. And saying we'll just observe a whole lot of people and see how they do is not going to give us the answer. I think the physician's question is a really key one the time that we get information about how well a drug works and what its side effects are is heavily centered on the FDA evaluation and the studies the companies bring to the FDA. If we shortcut that, we lose the opportunity to really understand the question that physicians face every day. And if we don't collect that information, we're all just kind of shooting blind when we prescribe those drugs uh, in the future. Okay. Sir.
2: Hi, my name is Edgar. Um,
3: I think a recent, relatively recent case was the drug of uh, Avastin that was unanim- unanimously declined by FDA, and yet there were a few patients that showed great promise. I mean, they really responded well to this, and yet under the old paradigm of chasing p-values, a statistical term, it just was uh, disregarded. So is it, could it be the case that the low-hanging fruits that fit the old model of statistics are done with and that maybe we should be looking at newer models. I mean, computation power is basically free now. Why not move in a new direction? Okay. To be clear, I don't think we're saying that. I think we're, we're saying both in, in the sure, case of Dr. Challoner and the approval of devices, and in my case, in the approval of drugs, there's a lot of, of exciting possibilities for looking at genetics, for looking at molecular markers. We're totally in favor of that, and I think that... One of the most important misstatements made by the other side is that FDA doesn't want to look at this and doesn't care. FDA very much is trying to look at this. They just want to get the science right. So it's a myth that FDA is not willing to consider. So, Jerry, what is it
0: that you want to hold on to
3: that you think they want to get rid of? I want to hold on to a careful view of the science. I want to hold on to having a high standard for when a biomarker or a surrogate measure or another assessment of a drug um, is accepted as really being scientifically true. And
0: you think that they're not, not... Well, I think
3: the fallacy in the other side's argument is that there's always going to be people who get better no matter what you do. And Could there, I, I won't, won't let, Peter, let Peter uh, say th- something th- you know, the, Then you, and we're going to wrap In
2: the, pre- the, pre- the White House report that I mentioned, they described the uh, IT systems inside the FDA. They, they, they are woefully inadequate, they have incompatible protocols, and they are still resorting to entering data manually. Now, I don't blame this on any individual at the FDA... But that's what happens to large bureaucratic structures in Washington. They are an information industry, and they can't—you uh, know—they're working uh, with clay tablets and donkeys. Really, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Jerry Avon.
3: Com- Jerry Aborn. I completely agree. As one of the authors of that presidential report, I totally endorse what you said. One of the difficulties FDA has is that folks who are intent on reducing the size of big government and taking away the budgets that government agencies have some of whom may be on the stage, that. Make, it impossible, <laughs> make it impossible for an agency like that to move into the, forget about the 21st, into the late 20th century because they don't have the budget. You need to be able to fund governmental entities to do the work that they need to do, not just say the marketplace will take care of it, and that's part of FDA's problem.
0: That, that, um, and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Now we move on to round three. These will be short closing statements from each debater in turn. Speaking first, to summarize his position against the motion, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Jerry Avorn, he is a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Avorn.
3: We've heard thalidomide mentioned a couple of times tonight, and I think that may be a good thing to to remember as, as you vote and as you think about whether the FDA is too cautious or not. Before the thalidomide debacle, there were some amendments in Washington that Senator Kefauver had put forward saying that in 1962, the agency ought to have the right to to make a manufacturer show that their drugs actually worked. And by all accounts, the Kefauver amendments were going to go down in flames because we had people saying, oh, we can't let big government get between the doctor and the patient. We can't have doctors' hands tied by having this government agency saying whether or not a drug is allowed to be sold for a given purpose. Right before the amendment went down in flames, it turned out that there were women who had children being born all over Europe, Japan... Um, Africa with little deformities, and many of you have seen these pictures, Um, instead of arms and legs. They had little flippers, as well as a lot of internal organ damage. And that was because a company was making a drug called thalidomide, called a lot of other things in other countries, as a sedative and anti-nauseant that was particularly marketed aggressively to pregnant women. And there was a reviewer in the FDA named Dr. Frances Kelsey. It was her first task. And she said, no, I don't think there's enough safety information. We don't need another sedative anti-nausea and for pregnant women. And almost single-handedly, she caused the drug to not be available or to deny it to the American public. As a result, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of American kids were not born with these anomalies. I don't think we want to go back to a pre-thalidomide era by weakening the
0: FDA. Thank you, Jerry Avorn. Our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Scott Gottlieb. He's a former FDA deputy commissioner.
1: I want to come back to that drug for Hunter's disease, Eliprase, so I talked about at the outset. When the data from that study were released, the results were impressive. Patients getting the drug could walk 44 meters farther in five minutes than before getting the drug. By comparison, most of the children under sugar pill showed no improvement, and many saw their condition worsen. I'd like to say that the kids who got the placebo would regain all the function they lost during that trial, but many would not. I'd like to say that companies are still developing drugs for these enzyme disorders, but no new companies have entered this space since that time, and only one subsequent drug has been approved for any of these diseases. And I'd like to say that the FDA reviewer in charge of imposing the Eloprase trial isn't handling drug reviews anymore, but he's actually been promoted and now sets drug review policy for the entire FDA. FDA reviewers are not oblivious to the human costs that we talked about here tonight, but the culture they operate under isn't suited well to minimizing them. By implementing a few key reforms and modernizing the science of regulation, FDA could modernize its culture and improve its ability
0: to keep Americans both healthy and safe. Thank you. Scott Gottlieb. Our motion is the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health, and here to summarize his position against the motion, David Chaloner. He is Vice President Emeritus for Health Affairs at the University of Florida.
4: The conversation tonight is obviously focused very highly on pharmaceuticals and not devices. But my comments at this point, uh, I think in the end, help both processes as long as the FDA was an active, engaged organization. Most voluntary reporting of problems on drugs or devices by patients, the public, the media, healthcare organizations such as clinics and hospitals generally first go to industry and then go from industry to the FDA. Legal counsel at many of these organizations are loath to report due to liability concerns for their own client. What does does get to industry, is supposed to be reported to FDA, but some estimates put the data that FDA received as reflecting only 1% to 2% of adverse events that actually occur with devices and drugs to the FDA. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Therefore, as things are managed currently, you must reject the premise that the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health.
0: Thank you, David Chaloner. And that's our motion. The FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Peter Huber. He is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute.
2: Look, in the storm of, of arguments uh, for and against this motion, I, I actually believe only one thing that we, the best thing for our health is to get the very best drug science we can possibly develop, and the rest will take care of itself. And I, and I have been lamenting, in case you haven't noticed, the FDA's dreadful failure to move molecular medicine systematically into its protocols. To tell us that they're working on it, you know, it's too late now. When they're done, vote for the other side, but until, for tonight, you know, uh, vote for our side. But but let me. I would like to give you just a taste, which blew my mind when I read this. Uh, True story. Six-year-old M- Emily Whitehead was on, you may have read this in the Times, you know, uh, was on the brink of death after a two-year battle with leukemia. Her doctors extracted from her, uh, some of her cancerous cells some signature molecules and moved them into some of her healthy immune system cells. Um, exactly as planned, they went in a, into a wild attack on their cancerous siblings, so wild that they overproduced a molecular, an immune system signaling molecule, a cytokine. One of her doctors knew that an arthritis drug, of all things, Control cytokines. He prescribed a massive dose. Uh, the ICU cast, uh, uh, staff gathered to sing Happy Birthday when Emily awoke from her coma on the day she turned seven. Uh, the Times ran her story just before Christmas, and Emily is healthy uh, to this day and, and cancer free. Um, what are we thinking when we tell the doctors, you know, to put on blindfolds and do no adaptation, no significant learning during, during the trials. The diseases that are probably going to kill you and you and you and me and the people we love are going to require complex arrays of, of drugs, you know, prescribed in complex ways. We have to do molecular medicine. The F- FDA isn't Peter doing Huber, it. Peter I'm sorry, your time uh, is F- up. Yes, but Thank you very much. It. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued best, most persuasively. All right, so we had you vote twice. On this motion, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. After voting twice, according to our rules, the team that has moved the most percentage points to its side will be declared our winner. Here are the results. In the first vote on this motion, the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. 24% of you agreed with the motion, 32% were against and forty-four percent were undecided. That's a very big undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, it's the numbers have moved most in terms of percentage points that will be declared our winner. Let's go to the second vote. First, the team arguing for the motion, their second vote is fifty-three <laughs> percent. That's the team that's saying that the FDA is too cautious. They went from 24% to 53%. They picked up 29 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team against this motion, their first vote was 32%. Their first vote was 32%. Their second vote, 38%. That's up only 6%. It's not enough. The debate goes to the team that was arguing that the FDA's caution is hazardous to our health. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR.